in your Bibles this morning, I would invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. This morning we come to the end of chapter 12, and really through much of the chapter and going back into chapter 11, we see a a string of speeches and messages by Jesus in which he is engaging with the crowd as well as at sometimes focusing more on his disciples. And we've seen in this long string of messages, Jesus rebuke the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Jesus warned his disciples about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Jesus warned the people about the danger of greed and covetousness. Jesus exhorting his disciples about the dangers of worry and anxiety focusing on the treasures of this life. And in the last passage that we looked at last week, we saw Jesus focus on the importance of watchfulness and being ready for the return of Christ. And the way to do that, the way to be watchful and to be ready is to be faithful, is to be engaged in abiding faith and faithfulness to the word of Christ. And this morning we come to verse number 49 of Luke chapter 12, where Jesus says, I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the West, immediately you say, It's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky? How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, Try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's bow in prayer together. Father of grace, we thank you for the wisdom the words of Christ that we have to listen to and to focus on this morning. We thank you for your holy word, that you have inspired your servants to write it, and that we have preserved for us a record of the life, the ministry, the teachings of Jesus, and a record of his saving, atoning work for us on the cross of Calvary and his resurrection from the grave. Father, I pray that as we spend the next few minutes just thinking on these words of Christ, that you would give us insight into them to understand the intention, the meaning of our Lord, 
and that we might also put into practice and apply, take heed what he is teaching us today. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. There are a lot of opinions about Jesus of Nazareth out there in the world. If you say the name Jesus, depending on who you're talking to, all kinds of different ideas and conceptions of who Jesus is might come to their minds. On one extreme, you have people that deny that the man Jesus of Nazareth ever even existed. That is an extreme view because there is ample historical evidence from both Roman historians as well as Jewish historians who had no love for Christianity that Jesus of Nazareth was a real man who existed in history. So you might have some that even deny his existence. You might have some that, like in the secular world today, kind of our postmodern kind of cafeteria approach to worldview, culture, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You might have some people in our culture say, you know, Jesus said some good things. And and, uh, I'll take some of these things that he said and maybe incorporate them into my life, but not with any kind of consistency. And not certainly not with any kind of uh, fullness with regard to everything that Jesus said. And so you have that view. You have the view of Islam who says that Jesus, in fact, was a great prophet. And they recognize Jesus as one of the great prophets, but they do not believe that he's the son of God. They do not believe that he is one of the the triune Godhead. They do not believe that he rose from the grave or that he ascended into heaven and is coming again. So they have a view of Jesus that is partially true, but mostly inaccurate and therefore dangerous and false. You have the Jewish faith who basically views Jesus as an imposter, as a false Messiah. And they don't recognize Jesus as a great prophet, a great teacher, or their Messiah. They reject him and they say that he was not telling the truth and he was not their true Messiah. You have uh, false Christian religions like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism that are descendants of that old ancient Arian heresy, going back to the early church, in which they see Jesus as man and quite special and in some sense, God-like, some kind of a God, small g, but not the same as the God, the creator God. In fact, both Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism believe that Jesus is a created being. And so again, a false view, a dangerously false view of who Jesus is. One of the popular perceptions of Jesus out there today is that Jesus was all about love. Jesus was all about peace. Jesus was all about unity. And the way you hear people talk about it, it's as if they believe that Jesus taught love at all costs, peace at all costs, unity at all costs. And there's no need for judgment. There's no need for correcting error. There's no need for dividing people over truth. The way you hear people talk about Jesus, he just loved everybody and welcomed everybody. And he never divided between people. And, you know, he never had anything controversial to say. They obviously haven't read the New Testament, right? 
Because here in our passage today, we have Jesus himself saying, I've come to bring division. Not, not every, just because people are going to respond to me differently means that there's going to be division between people. Some are going to respond to me positively. Some are going to respond to me negatively. There's going to be division, even within the same households. The, the version of Jesus that the popular culture has out there doesn't fit very well with verse 49 in which Jesus teaches us that unbelievers deserve judgment. So in verse 49, Jesus teaches us that unbelievers deserve judgment from him, but first he is on a mission to deliver his disciples. You read verse 49 and he says, I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. What is the image of fire? The image of fire is that of judgment. So Jesus is saying, I have come in part, a part of my mission is to bring judgment on the earth. And Jesus says, there's, he says, I wish that that judgment were already here. Why would Jesus say that? Well, Think about who he's been interacting with over the last chapter or two. He's been interacting with hypocrites. He's been interacting with skeptics. He's been interacting with religious people who are religious on the outside, but not really religious on the inside. He's been dealing with people who reject him, people who claim that he's casting out demons and the power of the devil himself. So with all of this unbelief and skepticism and and religiosity that is false around him and hypocrisy, Jesus says, I just wish the judgment of God was here now. Why would Jesus say that? Because he's a holy God, isn't he? He is a holy, righteous God. And as a holy, righteous God and a holy, righteous Messiah, he understands that unbelief and sin and wickedness deserve condemnation. And we know that fire is an image of judgment because earlier in Luke chapter three, verse 16, John the Baptist said this, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, Earlier, when we went through Luke chapter three, I explained that those are two different images that are opposite of each other. And Jesus has two different groups in mind when he says that. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for believers, those who welcome Jesus and receive him for who he is. But the baptism of fire is that of judgment for those who reject Jesus. And that's clear from verse 17 of Luke three, when it says his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So even back in Luke three, Jesus was already talking about a division, wasn't he? A division between people who believe him and accept him and those who do not. 
Those who believe and accept him receive the spirit. Those who do not receive the judgment of fire, of condemnation. So back in Luke 12, 49, when he says, I've come to bring fire on the earth and I wish it was already kindled. He's expressing his holy, righteous desire that sinners and judgment would come. That judgment would come on sinners, which is their due. But not yet. Not yet, right? Because we also read in the Gospel of John that Jesus' first coming was not primarily about judgment. His first coming was primarily about deliverance and salvation and coming to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he says in verse 50, yes, fire is coming and that kindling fire of judgment will come, but it is not here yet. It has not yet been kindled. Why? Because Jesus says in verse 50, I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. What does Jesus mean there by baptism? When we think of baptism, we think of a Christian professing faith in Christ and going under the waters of baptism in the baptistry. What does Jesus mean here by I have a baptism to undergo? He doesn't mean water baptism, does he? He's already had a water baptism by John the Baptist earlier in his ministry. And that water baptism was not even necessarily because Jesus was a sinner, because he's not a sinner in need of repentance. He did that to fulfill all righteousness, he says to John the Baptist. So Jesus has already had a water baptism by John the Baptist. What does he mean here? I have a baptism to undergo. There's another kind of metaphorical use of baptism, which basically means to go through an ordeal. To, to be overwhelmed, if you will. Because the root meaning of baptism means to be submerged, right? So when Jesus says, I have a baptism to go through, it's the idea of going through something, being submerged in something, immersed in something that is overwhelming. What is he referring to? He's referring to his mission of suffering, his mission of the cross, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he refers to it as a cup that he has to drink, which is probably best understood as the cup of the wrath of God that's poured out on sin that Jesus himself will drink for us on our behalf. Here he refers to it as a baptism, a, a, a suffering, an ordeal that he has to go through, and he feels the weight of that. I'm under constraint until it is completed, meaning he is on a mission to fulfill what God has given to him and a mission that he willingly accepted and humbled himself to come and accomplish. There's another use of this idea of baptism. When earlier in the Gospels, Jesus says, um, to, to Peter, he says, are you willing to go through the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with and drink the cup that I am going to drink? Meaning suffering. And 
Peter and the disciples say, yes, we are. And Jesus says, you will indeed go through the baptism that I go through and drink the cup that I drink, meaning you will suffer on behalf of the name of Christ for following me and being my disciple. So this baptism is his passion, his suffering. But why is he doing that? He's doing that for the sake of his people. He's going to deliver, to rescue, to redeem his people, his disciples. He's going to go through this to the cross for them. So unbelievers deserve judgment from Jesus, but first Jesus is going to deliver his disciples. He's on a mission to deliver them. Then Jesus says in verse 51, he reveals to us a a part of the nature of his ministry. And part of the nature of his ministry is that his ministry and his teachings, his word, they divide people. And they divide disciples from unbelievers. So he says in verse 51, do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Now, let's just stop there for a second. Is Jesus going to bring peace on earth? Ultimately, yes, he is, isn't he? Ultimately, in his final kingdom, at the consummation of all things, there will be peace on earth. Across the whole world, peace between people and peace between people and God. There will be universal peace within the the consummated final kingdom of Christ. But that too is not yet. Because right now, during this time in which the gospel is being preached, we still live in a world in which some believe and some don't, right? Some accept Jesus, some don't. And that response to Jesus causes a division between people. Now, it's not that Jesus' mission was to come and tear apart families. That's not what he's saying here. He's not relishing in the, in the idea of tearing families apart. That's not his point. The point that he's making is that when someone follows me in discipleship and faith, there will inevitably be division that happens even within the same household. It's just, it's, it's inevitable because he says in verse 52, from now on, there'll be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. And he says in verse 53, they'll be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. You almost wonder verse 53 is prophetic, right? Mother-in-law, daughter-in-law. Why does that always seem to be a thing? But here Jesus is talking about division that happens within the closest relationships of our lives. And we've seen where this happens, where the gospel divides people, where where someone in a family becomes a believer in Christ, a disciple of Jesus. And that creates a rift in that family where, where, there are some who kind of drift away from that and and it can cause a division. And Jesus says elsewhere that when it comes to following me and my teachings or being loyal to your family, there's a choice that has to be made. He says in Matthew 10, verse 37, 
Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. And so Jesus is saying there, you you can't choose the relationships of this world over Christ. Even as close as mother, father, brother, sister, husband, wife. There is a... There is a full giving of oneself to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and in discipleship that while still seeking to love everyone in this world, and as Paul says in Romans 12, to as much as lies within you to be at peace with all men. So it's not like we're intentionally wanting to create division, but Sometimes there comes a point where if you are going to be faithful to Jesus and follow his word, there will be division that happens. Even within families. His word, his ministry, the gospel divides disciples from unbelievers. And then he reveals in verse 54, a a mark of discipleship that is distinguished from what unbelievers do. And that is disciples discern accurately who Jesus is by the spirit, but unbelievers do not discern who Jesus is. He says in verse 54, he gives a couple of illustrations or analogies. He says to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the West, immediately you say it's going to rain and it does. And when the South wind blows, you say it's going to be hot And it is. So he says, you guys are really good amateur weathermen. And and you can tell, you know, you see the sky, you know, from experience. Well, I I know there's a front coming in. It's going to rain. You you know from how your body feels, right? There's a front coming in and it's going to get cold. He says, you're really good amateur weathermen. And you do really well looking at the sky and seeing what's going to happen and discerning what's going to go on. But he says... You are miserable at opening your eyes and seeing what's going on right in front of you. Because he's saying the signs are all around you. Just like the sign of a blue sky is, or a cloud rising in the west, he says it's going to rain. And just like the sign of a south wind means it's going to be hot. In other words, one sign leads to discerning what's going to happen or what is. Jesus says there's signs all around you about the uniqueness of this time of who I am standing right in front of you and you don't see it. Like what kind of signs? Jesus casting out demons, casting out evil powers. And instead of saying, wow, what great thing God has done, they say he must be doing this in the power of the devil. And they look at Jesus and he heals someone and he takes someone who is lame or had a bad hand and has never been able to use that hand his whole life. And Jesus heals him and they look at him and say, how dare you do that on the Sabbath day? And they're looking at all the signs and they see them right in front of their eyes, but they completely misinterpret them. They have blinders on, don't they? 
They have blinders on. They cannot see. Their hearts are hard. Their eyes are blind. They can't discern it. So what's the difference then between that and someone who can see? Who does see Jesus heal a lame man or cast out a demon or raise someone from the dead? And that person says, you're the Christ, the son of God. What's the difference? Well, Paul tells us what the difference is in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. When he says, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So how can someone come to a right estimation of who Jesus is? It's basically what 1 Corinthians 12, 3 is about. It's the Holy Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit that John teaches Nicodemus is that spirit that blows and blows where he wants to blow and you can't control where he goes, but he comes in and he grants new birth and he gives new life. That's the difference between someone who has discernment to see who Jesus is and someone who doesn't, whose eyes are still blind. We get another hint about how this happens in Matthew 16. When Jesus is directly asking his disciples, who do you think that I am? That's getting at the core of the issue, isn't it? Who am I? Am I Elijah? Am I a prophet? Am I, you know, Moses, come back. Who am I? And Peter answers in Matthew 16, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's the right answer, isn't it? He had eyes to see. He discerned that who Jesus was. But where did those eyes to see come from? Jesus tells him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. So disciples of Jesus, they have discernment to see who Jesus is. Their eyes are open. They see him. They believe him. Where does that discernment, those open eyes come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. They see and they believe. And then Jesus concludes his message by teaching us that disciples of Jesus do not delay in being reconciled to God. In other words, once their eyes are opened to discern who Jesus is, they also discern the importance of the urgency of believing and of faith and of following Jesus and of being reconciled to God. Notice what Jesus says in verse 57. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you're going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, those exact words are also found in Matthew chapter 5. But in Matthew 5, they're in a little bit different context. In Matthew 5, Jesus speaks them in more in a context of relationship between people, of not being angry with one another, of not murdering someone in our hearts, but of being reconciled to our brother. And so Jesus, the the message in Matthew 5 seems to be 
reconcile with your brother and don't wait, don't delay in that. But Luke, in the way he arranges Jesus' material here and arranges this saying of Jesus, I think is intending something a little bit different with its use here because of where he puts it. What is the, what's the overriding theme of all of these verses that we've looked at? Their overriding theme is Jesus is here. This is a unique time. This is the dawn of the age of the Messiah. This is the culmination of the prophetic hope. Jesus is here. Which side are you going to be on? Division. Jesus is going to divide Just by necessity, he's going to divide because the gospel divides disciples from unbelievers. Which side are you on? And I think the message that Jesus is saying with verses 57 to 59 is, don't delay in that. Don't delay in in believing and seeing and discerning who I am because there's a judgment coming. Remember how the passage started? Verse 49. There's a judgment coming. The time is up. The time is short. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming for unbelievers, but salvation for Jesus' disciples. So how are disciples of Jesus marked then? They're marked by spiritual discernment knowing who Jesus is and believing in him. And they're also marked by not delaying and being reconciled to God. They understand the urgency. They understand the importance. They understand the moment. And so Jesus says in verse 58, as you're going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way before you get to the judgment seat, he's saying. Before you get to the judge, Because by the time you get to the judge, you may be thrown into prison and you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And understanding that in a spiritual eternal perspective is you don't get out at all. One commentator puts it this way. A person should consider the nature of the time of this time and make the right response to his spiritual indebtedness to God. He says in understanding verses 58 and 59. We need to be reconciled to God. God is the ultimate judge, isn't he? He is the ultimate judge. And we have a debt that we cannot pay. And if that debt is not paid before we stand before the judge, we will be thrown into prison. We will be thrown into eternal prison, eternal condemnation, And so the message of the closing parable is reconcile with the judge now. How do you do that? Well, in the context, it is believing in Jesus, discerning who he is as the spirit opens your eyes to see him, believing in Jesus and following him and being willing to follow him no matter the cost of being willing to take up your cross and follow him and not looking back. Even if that means having to leave father or mother behind in order to follow Jesus Christ. Now, for many of us, I don't know how many, if I were to take a survey, a lot of us in this room 
we didn't have to make a choice between Jesus and family. A lot of us in this room, we are with Jesus and we believe in Jesus because of our families. Our mothers and our fathers introduced us to Jesus and the gospel. So many of us can't understand what Jesus is saying here, but there are places in the world today, real places, real people, where to believe in Jesus is to cut yourself off from your, from your family, from your community, from your society, and to be an outcast. In some places in the world, for you to openly profess Jesus means death. This is very real, not just theoretical, for believers, for disciples in our world today. Jesus says the time is now. The time is urgent. Judgment is coming. Fire is coming. Reconcile with the judge now. While you're on the way, before you get to the judgment seat. And the way we are reconciled to God is through Jesus. It's through Jesus. That is the only way, isn't it? He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father, God the Father, except through Him. And so believe in Him. Trust in Him. May the Spirit open your eyes to discern who Jesus is. And by believing, may you have life in His name. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father God, we thank you that Jesus has taught us his word. He has revealed truth to us and at sometimes hard truths. Truths that teach us of the sacrifice, the commitment that is involved in following Jesus, putting our hand to the plow and not looking back, taking up our cross of suffering and following him wherever he leads. Father, give us eyes of faith, eyes that can discern not just the weather, the physical things going on, but eyes that can discern the spiritual things. Eyes that have been opened by the Spirit to see and believe who Jesus is and to understand his word and to embrace it and incorporate it into our hearts and lives. Father, I pray that If there's someone here that is not yet a believer in Jesus, their eyes have not yet been opened to see and believe. God, open their eyes and help them to see the urgency of faith in Jesus and being reconciled to God. Father, may we be faithful disciples of Jesus and sharing your light in the world. Lord, may we seek to bring more and more into the fold of Jesus Christ through our witness through the example that we live, and just by sharing with them the good news that Jesus has come to redeem. Lord, I pray your blessings on your word today. May it continue to do a work in us long after we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.